Let me shake your hand. God bless you. I'm going to say good morning. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's settled here. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. COVID really stopped all church visits. I mean, it was three, four years we were not able to uh, come down here, and we were due for a while. Last time I saw Carl, was, and many of you, was five years ago, I'd say, around there. So it's been a while, and glad to finally be back down here and get to bring my family this time, and uh, really ministers to us. Good to see Grace again. Grace spent a few years in Cat Lake, so it's good to see her, her here in her homeland. Um, I do have some other uh, magnets here. If you guys have mentioned you have magnets of us, I have some updated ones freshly printed here. And uh, you could take one of those with you. And I was telling this couple over here yesterday that we don't just do it so you can pray for us. There's actually strategy involved. Have you guys heard of Pavlov's dog, that whole thing there? Well, our goal is that every time you see that on your fridge and you eat, it makes you think of us every time you eat so that when you see us in person, you naturally want to feed us. And so... <laughs> There is some selfishness to these magnets, so please grab one of those. But uh, the work we do in Cat Lake, it, it is exciting, it's hard, um, and I'll share more about that tonight. So I encourage you to come here and update tonight, hear the word preached. But what excites me more than the work in Cat Lake is the word of God. It's, the, it's why we're there. It's why I'm convinced that we must be there. And so it's an it's a honor and joy to bring the word of God to you this morning. So let's pray before we begin. Father... You are amazing. I was just looking outside a few moments ago and just seeing the beauty of the trees and the sky, um, even things that man have built like homes, yet none of those are your treasured possession. We are. That's incredible. We are your treasure. We are your pearl of greatest price that you gave everything you had to purchase. I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful, Lord, that um, you use broken vessels on this earth to make your name known to those who don't know you yet, that we get to proclaim the word to each other, uh, to build each other up in our, in, in our most precious faith. So I pray, Lord, that your word, as it already is, would be alive and active in everyone's hearts today, that it would convict, encourage, and equip for what you would have us to do today and for the rest of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Come here. Don't touch that. Sit down. Eat your food. Use your words. Be quiet. My kids are looking at me. Go to bed. <laughs> Hurry up. Look in my eyes. Do your chores. Clean up your room. Be careful. Don't eat that. Get dressed. Stop. <laughs> Say you're sorry. Don't step on your brother. No potty talk. Say excuse me. Say thank you. Say please. Sit still during church. The list goes on and on. Our lives, especially, especially if you have children like me, are completely packed with to-dos and commands. We get completely overwhelmed thinking about the hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament Jewish laws, but I just gave a couple dozen without even thinking about it. We underestimate how much our lives and our kids' lives are governed by commands. Now, commands are good, but commands without purpose could be burdensome and quite impossible to follow from the heart. And my wife, being the amazing mother she is, explained commands to our children in such a refreshing way that I've learned from, and here are a few examples. Owen, why did God create your hands? He would learn to say, to help and to build and to play. Well, how did you use your hands? To hurt my brother? Yes, you used your hands not 
not to do what God created them to do, but to hurt someone else. And, and that's, not, that's not their purpose for why they were made. So go be reconciled to Graham. Finley, mommy and daddy love you. Do we give commands to hurt you? No. No, we give them to you to keep you safe because you're our son. And when mommy says, come here, you must obey right away because mommy's your authority, loves you, and wants you to be safe. Graham, did God create your mouth to bite your sister? No, definitely not. Why did he create your mouth? To eat food, to talk, to sing, to breathe? Right, and even though Avery's so cute that you just want to bite her little cheeks, you disobeyed mom and dad, and you will get a consequence. And then to share a question that I ask all of my children frequently that encompasses all the commands we give them in their purpose, I'll say something like this, Avery, why do I love you? And she says, because we've taught her why we love her, she says, because I'm your daughter. Right, and will you ever not be my daughter? No. So no matter what, will I always love you? Yes. If you ever ask your child that question and they say, because I obey you, you are in serious trouble. And this is the trouble that the Colossians, the people of Colossae were in, and Paul is going to spend all of chapter 3 undoing what many enemies of the gospel have done. Paul's stepping into some sensitive cultural dilemmas here. On the one hand, you have this mainly Gentile city that would struggle with just gross immorality and idol worship. But on the other hand, you have these legalistic teachers that have tried to indoctrinate these Gentile Christians with traditional laws and these hyper-spiritual practices to be good followers of Jesus. So Paul's going to lay out many, and I mean lots, of commands here in this chapter, but he does it so carefully and so refreshingly that it will leave them with such pure motivation to take on this new way of life. It's life that flies in the face of the culture that they're living in. It's a whole new way to worship as a diverse group of people. In chapter 2, he lays out why he's going, uh, Paul lays out this aggressive approach to this obedience issue. Then the chapter itself ends with, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to, the things, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's how it ends. No value stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Stopping the indulgence of the flesh is a problem, and it's something that needs to be done. We feel that every day. But these ascetic practices and regulations, Paul says, are of no value. Well, what does have value? The answer is given back in chapter 1, but it's unfolded more here in chapter 3. And the answer is what Paul refers to as the secret or mystery hidden for generations, but now revealed to the saints. And that's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That secret is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The secret to living for the purpose why, that they were created for, that we're created for, is understanding who Jesus is and that he lives in us. That's why chapter 2 ends with, if with Christ you died to the world, why do you still submit to its worldly regulations? And chapter 3 starts with, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek what is above. Whether it is what we are supposed to do or aren't supposed to do, it begins and ends with whether or not we have Christ in us. Have we died with him? Have we been raised with him? Even though a better translation here would be since then, which is assuming since they have been raised. 
there's still a question as we read this that we all must ask. Are we truly born again? That's why he's writing to them. If you are truly in Christ, everything he's about to say here, everything in this chapter is dependent on them being born again. If then you have been raised with Christ. Otherwise, there's no power to change morals, to change obedience. It's impossible to make a goat do what only a sheep could do. We must be given a new heart. We must first be a new creation to apply any of this. So let's take a closer look at chapter 3 and how Paul shepherds them through these issues. And like all good sermons in America, I've broken this down into three points. So we have set your eyes on where your true life already is uh, in verse 1 through 4. 5 through 11 is put to death what is already dead. And then 12 through 17 is put on what you're already wearing. And I first want to show you the entire text on the screen to show you Paul's strategy here for this part of the letter. And at the same time, I want to challenge you to read the whole New Testament this way. I often use Colossians 3, this chapter specifically, in early discipleship um, to drive home the key components, component to obedience. And in this chapter, you're going to see what I have highlighted here in yellow as these indicatives. Indicatives, kids, are just what is already true about you in Christ. So indicative just means what's already true. And then in blue, you see the imperatives, which is now what do I do because of what is true. So indicative, what is true. Imperative, what do I do? And so as you can see, this chapter is one big indicative sandwich, right? You see all these statements in yellow about their identity in Christ. It's just building them up about what's already true. And then in blue, you have all the imperatives. What should they do because of these things being already true? And you can't have one without the other, right? If it's true that in Christ, uh, if it is true that Christ is in us, we will obey. It's part of our new nature, right? If we are obeying, it's because we have been raised to new life. Paul didn't separate these, and neither should we. And it's so easy to read Colossians and just say, "Wow, there's a lot of chapters, a lot of do's and don'ts." But look at all of who he's bu- building them up as: as holy and beloved people who have been born again. And so. The false teachers, they tried to elevate the obedience part, right? That was what they were focusing on, is this hyper-exertion of effort, beating the body, denying the necessities of life, and expecting to enter this visionary realm through this hyper-obedience. But it had nothing to do with Christ. Paul says that obedience has everything to do with conversion, everything to do with the gospel, with this secret of Christ in us. So try grabbing two highlighters and go through some epistles this way. It's so life-giving. I really encourage you to do that. You'll be amazed at how many more indicatives there are in the New Testament than you ever knew what is just already true about you. Um, and when you, when you do it this way and then you fail to obey, your failure will result in looking to the gospel rather than trying new tricks to obey. And that's what we need to do for obedience is look to the gospel uh, to grow. So let's take a closer look at just this first section here. uh, Set your minds on where your true life already is. So I'll read this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Living on this earth, we get caught up in a lot of junk, don't we? (laughs) I mean, it's bad. What you wear, what you eat, what you watch, what you drive, where you live, where you work, what you scroll through, 
what you invest in, how you spend your weekends, you know, what stores you shop at, how to make your children or grandchildren happy, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. And we spend enormous amounts of energy and time setting our minds on the things of this earth. And that's a natural thing to do. God put us on this earth after all. We want to live mostly happy, fulfilling, productive lives. And, and who could blame us, right? Many of these things are, are blessings in this life. They're honorable things. But if we're being honest, so often they lead to sin and discontentment, don't they? Many of these things are not dirty, gross sins visible to, to the public eye, but they are sin nonetheless. And so the Colossians struggle with these same things. Paul doesn't share these first four verses without reason. He must have had some reason that maybe reports from Epaphras came that these Colossians had some amazing faith, but they were also still dabbling in the sins of the world, things that are celebrated by the majority of people in Colossae. So do you ever stop and think, if this is what was reported of the Colossians, what would be reported of you? If you're 12 year old, right, had free range to honestly divulge all of your earthly ways to your spiritual leader, what would they say? Man, I, I, I know my kids would have a lot to say. Daddy gets angry sometimes. I'm, got, I'm guessing a lot of us would hear some nasty stuff. And I think Paul heard some pretty nasty stuff. And he's going to uh, name some of those things in the next session, but he doesn't hammer them at all. I love the way he does it. He praises them for what they're doing right. Even though he had heard reports of the things that they were doing that were sinful, he doesn't just hammer on those. But here's the good news. Paul's solution to this problem we have, this eye problem, this mind problem, this priority problem, is to tell us something amazing. Here's what he says in these verses. You're going to heaven. Well, he, what he says exactly is, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul tells them to seek what is above and have their minds set on what is above, not on the things on earth, because, that's what the four mean, four is a rationale for what he just said, because we have already died to those earthly things. Our life is already hidden with Christ and God. Just as certain as Jesus will return, so we will certainly be with him in glory. I mean, talk about motivation to change. Paul says, you're definitely going to spend eternity with Christ, so just live like it. Can you imagine if I said, if you're home at 8 p.m. tonight, you will get $1 million? All of you would be at home at 8 p.m. tonight. You would not miss that, right? It's a guarantee. You are guaranteed to go to heaven. Guaranteed if you are in Christ. How do we not live like it? We've all heard that silly phrase, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I say that's a bunch of baloney. I've never met someone that's so in love with Jesus and so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. These are the people I want to be like. This is what Paul tells the whole church to be. Be heavenly minded. See, spiritual warfare, it's not just demonic forces and suffering. Satan's greatest tool against us as believers is putting enough things in front of us to keep us satisfied with life on this earth. He wants to lull us to sleep, right? One thing at a time. He wants to make sure that we never find our, our true Holy Spirit given purpose. Seeking what is above is directly related to the Great Commission. And to be honest, it can be pretty hard for us at times to go back to churches in the U.S. It feels like sometimes the churches in America has found ways to remove all risk from Christian living. It feels like there's so little adventure, so little stepping out in faith to evangelize the lost, so little effort to enter into completely broken homes and see people change slowly through many hours of laboring in their lives with the Word. 
And often it's because it's inconvenient to our schedules. We've become so obsessed with life here on this earth that we miss the people all around us that need Jesus. We put up tall fences to protect our privacy and our things rather than entering into a place where we might have to let go of them. And that was one of the hardest things about moving up north is letting go of all sense of privacy. It is a communal place and everything is exposed. That ripped idols away from us so hard. The church has become content with slow growth and perfecting our knowledge of the word. The word is meant to forcefully fling us out into the darkness all around us. And it's darkness that cannot prevail up against the gospel. And I don't say this in judgment. I'm, I'm saying this as part of the church in North America who has been given the privilege of an outsider's perspective. I have entered into another culture and been forced to view the church and mission in a completely different way, through a different lens. And it's beautiful. God is doing so much through his church that we cannot see, but we must be a part of it. We must remember that our life is hidden with Christ and live accordingly. Seek what is above is what Paul says. This time on earth here is a vapor. So now Paul is going to explain more how to actually do this, how to set their minds on what is above. So the next section here is put to death what is already dead. You weren't kidding. This is really hot. And I feel like this pulpit is Carl size. I mean, a little bit taller one. Part of my looking down so much. I'll read 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So in the first section, Paul urged them to not set their minds on earthly things, and here we see some of those earthly things fleshed out. And the command is to put them to death, but the reason is because, what? Their life is already hidden with Christ, and they will appear with him in glory. And we can't forget that that's why there's a therefore the therefore is applying what was just said, so don't separate that. The whole reason for putting these things to death is because our lives are hidden with him. It seems that Paul, in giving this, these lists of what, what to put to death, categorizes them, I would say, into these inward struggles and outward struggles. And let me show you what I mean by that. Look at the first sentence. It says, sexual morality, impurity, passion or lust, evil desire, and covetousness. When you think about these, most of these usually happen at the mind or heart level, right? He says to put to death what is earthly in you, meaning what's going on inside. And as Western Christians, I think we've perfected the way that we portray what's on the outside, but rarely let others in on the inward struggles. And that's why Paul reveals these first. When is the last time that you asked someone after church how they're doing and they said, well, actually, I'm glad you asked. I'm, I'm really coveting your family. You know, you guys have just such a nice house, a nice car, and your children are all well-dressed and well-behaved, and I would just want that. I envy that. How about you? How are you doing? Right? <laughs> if we heard that kind of honesty, right, our jaws would drop to the floor, and we'd have no idea how to answer. 
But at the same time, how many of you are dying for that kind of honesty and ability to have those kind of conversations about what you're really struggling with? And even though Paul's never really met these people, he goes right to the point. He knows that there's earthly things lurking within them and tempting them within their culture. Paul knows because he has the struggle lurking within himself. He tells them to kill them, murder them. These are the very things that are bringing the wrath of God, the inward struggles. Wow. That's powerful. That's scary. These nasty, heart-level, mind-level sins are speeding the coming judgment of God. And I don't think I need to break these down one by one, like sexual morality is this, impurity is this, lust is this, evil desire is this, and here's all the things we covet. You know what these are because you feel it when you commit them. Either your conscience allows it because you're not saved, or your conscience is pricked because you know you're worshiping an idol. Do you see that Paul even specifically identifies covetousness as idolatry? And maybe these Christians in Colossae were not worshiping the man-made idols like the culture around them anymore, but they were still idolaters from these inward sins. And idolatry is the worship of anything but God. Participating in any of these inward sins is simply making a sacrifice to an idol that you're worshiping. And when we do this, we're actually punishing others in our lives to make these sacrifices to these idols. Just ask a loved one how you might be doing this and get ready to repent. Say, how am I punishing you by worshiping my idols? Especially spouses, ask that. Give someone free reign to tell you what are the idols you're worshiping and the sacrifices you're making to do that. But you know what? Paul doesn't need to expound on these sins because that's not the way that he knows this flock needs to be shepherded. He doesn't need to beat them down with how they're not measuring up. Look at what he says in verse 7. In these two you once walked, when you were living in them. Is this past, present, or, or is this past, present, or future, kids? Do you hear that verse? In these two you once walked, when you were living in them. What tense is that? Past. This is past tense. He tells them that they once walked in these, which means they're not walking in them anymore. It isn't who they are. It isn't what they're doing anymore. Sure, they're tempted with these sins all, all the time, right? Maybe they give in to them every now and then. But Paul is saying, this is your past. He's reminding them that this is not who you are. It's not the path they're on anymore. They're simply putting to death what is already dead, Right? Paul isn't giving them strategies on how to kill sin. He's telling them who they are, which is the best motivation to kill sin. They're putting to death what's already dead. I remember one time I was just a couple of years ago just sleeping. It was like midnight, and I just hear this faint crawling in my pillow. And it wakes me up, and I soon realize that it's not on my pillow. It's in my ear. And there is a bug that has crawled like into my brain. And I'm freaking out, right? I'm just like trying to get it out, but it's so deep in there. And I like wake Jen up. She's like, what's going on? finally wait for that thing to crawl out, and, and I killed that thing like six times, right? It was just this stink bug that I just kept killing and killing and killing, so that my whole head stunk, but I was just putting to death what was already dead. That's what the, that Paul's saying here. That thing's already dead. You're just killing it over and over and over. Now he's going to name some outward sins that are often committed against each other, moving from the inward to the outward. These are the things that negatively affect our community life, and we could feel it. He says, but now, remember, because you aren't walking in them anymore, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another. Something I've come to love about the culture we're living in Cat Lake is how it's just like one big family. And though that could be very draining at times, like family is, everyone knows each other's junk. And since it's hard to hide it, everyone's a lot more open about their struggles, a lot more honest, a lot more real about their need for change. And these issues are also one of the greatest things facing the local church because they truly divide people and keep them from worshiping together. But how often do you come to church but struggle to sit next to the very people you came with because something's happening at home that was never reconciled? And Paul's telling them that even those things, which, you could sometimes, which sometimes could feel to be excused or tolerated within the context of family, he's saying those things need to be put away, right? Sometimes we feel like slandering, slandering others with our spouse is a safe place to do it. But that's not an exception Paul makes here. Sometimes slandering others we don't know personally, like governors or presidents or the entire liberal party seems to be okay, but it's not. Getting angry at the people who see things differently from you is not mentioned here as one of the exceptions that it's okay to slander others. And believe me, I've had my own anger struggles in this area, but we must put them all away, Paul says. And once again, I don't think I need to explain which, what all of these look like in your context. I think you know how it feels to be angry. You know what it looks like to slander others, to use crude language. You know what it means to lie to someone. Paul's emphasis in this chapter is not defining these sins. sins. It's showing them that they're already dead. Look at what he says next in verse 9. After telling them all these sins, he says, seeing that you have, past tense, put off the old self, past tense, with its practices, and have put on, past tense, the new self, which is being, now present tense, renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So once again, The reason why they should put all these things away is because those clothes don't fit anymore. I remember one of my boys had his shirt that he loved. It was just his favorite shirt. But the kid grew so fast that the shirt didn't fit anymore, but he would still try to put it on, and, you know, the sleeves were coming up to here, and it was, like, right at his waistline. And he was just so upset because he couldn't wear it anymore, but he looked super awkward. We made him throw it away. That's what we look like when we're trying to put on the old self. We're trying to put on clothes that don't fit anymore. This anger, slander, obscene talk, lying just doesn't fit. They only fit the old self, Paul says, and they just don't work on the new self. But the indicative here, what is true, is that this is the work of going, uh, the work of going from old to new is already done. Now it's just a matter of believing it and acting on it. So let's look at verse 10. It says, this new self is being renewed, which is a daily thing, in knowledge after the image of its creator. And I love the way the NLT says this. It says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. This verse implies that the renewing happening, that the renewing happens through knowing Jesus better. Renewing happens through knowing Jesus better. If you're a Christian, as part of your new nature, reading the word, meditating on it is not optional. If you don't like reading, then listen to it. If you show me a Christian that's withering on the vine, I'll show you a Christian who has separated themselves from God's word. God's word is our life. It's how we renew ourselves in Christ every day. And in order to walk as the new self, we have to, like Paul says later on, let the word of Christ richly dwell in us. We have the blessing of being literate and having God's word in our own language in multiple versions. 
And I'll tell you, I know firsthand that not everyone has that. Take advantage of that. But now Paul's going to make probably one of his most important statements throughout this entire letter. And this is the racism killing statement here. This sets the stage for the main application he's going to bring later. Look what he says next. He says, here. So first, where is here? Here in this new life he's talking about. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now this might not hold a lot of weight for you and me today, but this was huge for them. This was changing the fabric of their entire society, of their entire religion as Jews. There is no doubt that these ethical and societal norms had carried over into the church. Most of the context of all the epistles is a racism context. How to make Jews and Gentiles worship together in Christ. And we know for certain that the Jews that came into the church were trying to force their cultural practices on the Gentiles and adding burdens that Jesus did not want them to carry. And we know that the murderers and barbarians that had been saved by Jesus must have had a hard time being accepted into this church. Paul's writing this for a reason. There's no past anymore, guys. This is a new community that have thrown off their old selves and put on their new selves. And the mark of this new community is that the people in it stop cherishing the things that separate. That is what the church is. We stop cherishing the things that separate. We stop boasting about the ethical or ethnical distinctives or language or intellect or culture, all these things, education, homeland, social status, money, those things have all passed away. The primary mark of newness in this community is that Christ is all that matters. God bless America or God bless Canada is not the slogan of the church, right? God bless the church, not the country. God cares about the church around the whole world. Paul is giving them the freedom to treat each other fairly and have a fresh start on the basis of Christ's unconditional love. And this statement sets the stage for the type of worship he's going to encourage them to be a part of. And that's going to be the, the last section here. Put to death, or put on what you're already wearing in verses 12 through 17. Let's read this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Look what that said. Put on as what? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let me show you an image to help you. This, help, this, this is where I went wrong as a kid. That's what I was taught as a child in church. Obey to be holy. And it's so sad how many churches preach that. Obey Jesus to be holy. You want to grow in your holiness? Obey Jesus more. But look at what Paul's saying here. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he goes on. Since we already are holy and loved, let's truly be different. 
This is the gospel. You are holy. Therefore, obey. That's who you are. If you mix that up, your life is going to be spent in guilt and shame and never actually knowing Jesus. When I finally got that, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit at age 19, it just brought me to life. And everything I had learned as a child in, in, in church actually came to life, and I was able to process that. But before then, it was just burdens. It was weight. It was guilt. It was shame. It was sin. Because I was trying to measure up to something I can never be, which is wholly on my own. So I just wanted to show that, especially for all you kids. That is what Paul's saying here. Let's go back to the text here. So this grace-driven, gospel-driven motivation, right, it's the only one that's going to last. You'll never be more loved by God than you are right now in Christ. And you will never be less loved by God than you are right now. It's all because of Jesus. So because we are chosen, because we are loved, because we are holy, we need to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, understanding, and forgiving. We must be loving. Why? Why? Because it's the only fitting response to being loved the way we have been. Because it's who we are. So even though this is now our new nature, we're still called to put on these things. It means that even though we're born again, it still takes a conscious effort to be these things. But now it is possible, whereas before Christ it was not. It's a choice as Christians to show compassion instead of being cold and having this, well, they should have, or well, I told you so attitude. It's a choice to be kind when your flesh says just to be inconsiderate and thoughtless. And don't even say that humility and meekness are natural, because we all know they're not. We live in a day and age that we must be like, loved, and shared for the things we do. Pridefulness is celebrated. Going viral is all the rage. Being lowly does not make you popular. And Paul tells him, guys, that clothing doesn't fit anymore. Put on humility and meekness. Stop puffing yourself up because of what Christ has done for you. And this next one rattles my cage particularly, which says be uh, patience and bearing with others. Paul knows me, man. <laughs> he isn't just telling me to put, a, put away the anger I struggle with, but to put on the opposite. Patience. And people can be so frustrating, can't they? Kids can be so foolish, right? In Christ, it doesn't matter what other, others do. It matters what we are. And we must be patient and tolerant. My child's foolishness does not excuse my impatience. But we wish, we, we wish it did, don't we? Christ saved us for a greater purpose than being easily angered and impatient. Someone might look at all these qualities and think, well, it sounds like it would be fake if we were all these all the time, right? Real love is being okay not being perfect around each other. Real love sometimes involves honesty about things that frustrate us about each other. You're right. And that's why the next part says that if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. You must also forgive. Sin and conflict will happen in our church, but we must forgive because it's what Jesus did for us. These were the qualities he demonstrated as the head of the church. But maybe you grew up with a dysfunctional family where rudeness, anger, sarcasm, pride, narcissism, being inconsiderate were normalized. Maybe you carried these expectations into the church and have never allowed the word of God to redefine what this family is supposed to be like. Just because it's peaceful doesn't mean it's fake or shallow. 
Thankfully, we have a clear definition here of what chosen people are meant to be like in this new family. Don't be fake, right? No one's saying be fake. Just take off the old clothes because they don't fit anymore. The church should actually be a place of peace and forgiveness and love. It doesn't mean it's fake. Be who you were saved to be. It's amazing. It's amazing being a part of a church that feels like people genuinely love and care for each other. And for the best description of these three character qualities, I mean, look at the life of Jesus and mimic that. That is why it is love that's mentioned above all to put on, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Just as Jesus' life, death, and resurrection brought all cultures, races, and classes into a new, new people, love brings us all together when it naturally shouldn't work. This, this shouldn't work naturally. The church shouldn't work. But it does in Christ. Love is putting others' interests above our own. Love is choosing to commit to each other no matter what. And people ask us, how could our team have lasted so long? It's not because we're, we really love spending time together, we're like each other. It's because of Christ. Christ, when we understand what he's done for us and we sin against each other, we could genuinely go to the cross and forgive each other. Jesus is the one who binds us together and putting Jesus first keeps it that way. So check out these next few verses. Growing up, we were taught in school not to start a sentence with and, but Paul doesn't seem to care about that rule in his writing, does he? He says, and above all, put on love and let the peace of Christ rule your hearts and be thankful. This is all one thought in Paul's mind, and there's no other way to connect them in English than just saying and a bunch of times, right? That's a lot of ands. You see, when you put on love, which binds everything together, the guaranteed result is peace. Peace that we were called to, not as individuals, but as a body. And that peace is only unlocked when we are pursuing Christ together as a body. It's only unlocked when we're pursuing Christ together. And when we have love and peace, how else could we respond than thankfulness? Colossians says, Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And if you were called to peace, created for peace, fighting that purpose or even being indifferent to that purpose is living for the opposite that you were created for. That is going to result in a lack of purpose, joy, and inflict just suffering in your life that has no purpose. You need the body of Christ. You need to put off the things that separate you from them and put on love which binds all things together. Then results in peace and thankfulness. There's no other way to go through life. It's amazing how thankfulness, I love how Paul ends that, that way here, thankfulness is truly the secret ingredient to fighting sin and treating others with compassion and love. If every day we wake up and thank God for what he's done uh, for us in Christ, it does wonders to our own attitudes. If I wake up and I forget to just remember what Christ has done for me, my attitude stinks. But if we start every day being thankful for what Christ has done for us, it truly changes our outlook on the day. If we thank God for what we do have rather than being consumed by what we don't, it allows us to put others' needs above our own. And this is where Paul transitions into his final application, and he's going to keep the same theme going about being thankful. And these last few verses are really going to clear up what this has all been about, and that's the gospel and worship. The gospel and worship. He's writing to the church, after all, and he wants them to be able to focus on the gospel and worship, and this is a church that needed reform in their worship. They needed to hear the gospel over and above the false teachers that are coming in, trying to disrupt them and apply it to how they're gathering. 
And as you saw, verse by verse, Paul has laid out the gospel for them, who they are in Christ here and who they should be in Christ. Now he's going to tell them to let the word, the word that he's spoken throughout this entire letter, the mystery hidden for ages, dwell in them richly. He wants them to be gospel-centered people. He wants them to be people of the word, specifically how the word centers around Christ, his message. And without this, worship is worshipless. But when this message of Christ dwells in us richly, they can indeed now teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. They could indeed sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God and to each other with thankfulness in their hearts. And the gospel should penetrate every sermon from this pulpit as well. The gospel should be oozing from every single teacher that leads a Bible study, small group, Sunday school teacher, whatever it is. In order to teach and admonish in all wisdom, the gospel has to penetrate all of it. You should never walk away from a sermon thinking, I need to be a better Christian. Every single sermon we should walk away, every message, whatever it is, saying, I need Jesus more. Because that's who Jesus came for, those who say, I need Jesus more. What about music? Paul says, use all types here, but sing with the gospel dwelling richly in us. We can't sing songs that conflict with the message of the word. We can't criticize songs just because they don't fit our preferences. God doesn't just care about how they worship, what kind of songs they choose. He cares about why they worship. They worship with a heart of thankfulness, he's saying, their motives. Worship that is acceptable to God is from a heart that knows how much we have been forgiven and loved by Jesus. A heart that pours out thankfulness. I mean, Jen and I struggle to keep our eyes dry during worship when we visit churches because it's just so amazing after being separated from our home culture for eight years now to be a part of it again and hear people singing around us. We don't get that every day, every week. We're around other people in Cat Lake that are worshiping, but the worship is vastly different. And though we enjoy it and it's genuine worship, it's just not the same. So sometimes stepping out of it for a while and coming back into it really helps you have what Paul's saying here thankfulness in worship rather than criticism in worship. So in closing, let's look at this last verse together. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is why the epistles were written. To solve problems, right? There's a problem in this church. There's problems in the church in Cat Lake. And I used to think that my job is to plant a church that doesn't have problems. Like, absolutely not. I actually am going to plant a church that has problems, and thankfully, I have this to help them address them. So there's a problem here in in this epistle. There's a problem in this town that's just not focusing on the gospel. That's why this was written. And we're deceiving ourselves if we think that our churches don't have these same problems. And this last verse speaks to them then in Colossae, and it speaks to us now. So whatever we do, putting off, putting on, setting our minds on the things of heaven, killing racism, forgiving others, worshiping together, teaching and admonishing or singing, all of these things that fill our lives, all of it needs to be done, what does he say? In the name of the Lord Jesus, with thankfulness in our hearts. Whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do all for the glory of Jesus with a thankful heart. I can't be angry in the name of Jesus. You can't slander someone in the name of Jesus. We can't lie to each other or withhold forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Do you get it? If we filter everything, and I mean everything, through Jesus, it transforms the way we think, behave, and worship. 
It is a heavenly way of living, and this is why we are created. So Paul would tell to, say to us, be thankful. Be thankful. Look to Jesus. Put off the old, put on the new. And keep all this in mind as you continue your walk with Christ, because it's not over now. It will continue to the day we die, clinging to Christ, growing closer to him, and growing closer to each other. So let me pray. Lord, we bow our heads before you because you are the creator of heaven and earth. You are the only one worthy of our worship and praise. You are the only one worthy of putting off the old self because you have allowed us to put on the new through your Holy Spirit and the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is not in the grave anymore. He is the resurrected, all-powerful king. And he will come back. We look forward to that day when he will come back to judge he will not lay down his life again. He will have fire in his eyes and he will execute justice swiftly. Let us be found on that day as people who are new creations, people who have put off the old, those things that are bringing the judgment of God and put on the new, being renewed daily in love and kindness and thankfulness. Help no one to walk away from here feeling like a failure and trying harder. Help everyone to walk away knowing that because we're failures, that's why Jesus died for us. And because we're failures, he's given us his Holy Spirit to renew us each and every day. And we don't have to try harder. We have to cast ourselves upon Jesus more because he cares, because he loves, because he forgives. It's unending. I'm grateful for that in my own life. I pray, Lord, that you would make your word alive through this passage to everybody. In Christ's name, amen.